0: Hello and welcome to Journeys, a series of podcasts from Cultural Enterprises. My name is Jo Fennick, and I am the Chief Executive of the Association for Cultural Enterprises. Over the course of the series, I will be chatting with colleagues from across the cultural sector, all in senior roles and commercial activities, in a bid to unearth the person behind the job title. This series was prompted by a reflection on my own journey in our sector, much of which was more by accident than design, and a curiosity about the journeys of others. We'll find out how they got here, what they've learned along the way, and their thoughts on the future of our sector. I hope you enjoy the series. Our guest today is Kingston Miles, Head of Commercial Development at English Heritage. Welcome, Kingston. We're so glad you could join us. Hi. I'd like to begin with a question about your professional journey. You've had a very varied career, I think I can say. So what brought you into the cultural sector?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely been a varied career and certainly not um, a pathway which is considered sort of more traditional in the cultural mm. sector. Um, I have a background in uh, hospitality, uh, nightclubs, events, um, the festivals world, which by its very nature is very transient and you tend to move through that sector sort of um, chasing sort of promotions and opportunities to grow. Mm -hmm. And I think I was attracted by uh, the job advert for my first role in the cultural sector, which was at the Ashmolean Museum, um, because it played on a number of those sort of transferable skills that you could take from hospitality and events, but really did apply them into um, into the cultural sector and in a setting which, you know, ultimately felt more settled um, yeah. and was very much nine to five uh, rather than sort of um, the five to nine again that exists within the, the hospitality sector. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was it was a it was a unique opportunity, I guess, to take all of those skills and apply them into the sector. Um, and something that actually I think we see more and more in roles nowadays is that opportunity to sort of transition into the sector. But I think it was one of those those earlier roles um sort of four years ago or so that that sort of brought me in and here I am now
0: and yeah you have a degree in law I understand is that correct
1: yeah so uh studied law um absolutely definitely sort of at 18 19 thought I was going to be a lawyer um <laughs> and um yeah got to university and sort of fell in love with sort of events and you know, to an extent, some of which I still get to do now in my current role. But sort of fell in love with with events and nightlife and sort of the social scene that 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 uh, job path provided. I graduated and then sort of carried on not being a lawyer. So.
0: <laughs> That's extraordinary, but uh, I can I can understand it. I'm, I wouldn't like to be a lawyer either. But there we are. I'm not clever enough. So tell us a bit more about your current role with English Heritage then the commercial development role.
1: Yeah, so um, my current role was a new role uh, formed in uh, 2020 to oversee um, the intellectual property licensing and holidays, cottages, um, businesses within English Heritage, and also contracts and compliance, so looking after procurement. Um, But soon after starting, I picked up responsibility for our uh, venue hire um, and hospitality business, um, Mm -hmm. which now also includes filming. So you could look at the role really as sort of an incubator, if you like. You know, it's all those um, areas within commercial where there's a real opportunity to grow. Um, you know, we've got our steadfast retail business and our catering business and our events and public events business. And the areas that I look after, you know, in, in years to come will hopefully become sort of as um as profitable and as sizable a contributor towards the sort of commercial income that we generate as those other areas so yes yeah, it's, it's exciting varied um, and very much growth focused
0: and just to uh, remind anyone who is listening who may not know um, the structure of English heritage is that it's 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 now I believe after the split a couple of years ago it's now self-funding is that right
1: Yes it's an independent charity on its way to being uh, financially self-sufficient so financial sustainability is one of our sort of core um, corporate objectives um, and the commercial business within English Heritage uh, currently contributes just over 28 million pounds in income and is set to grow to a sort of 40 million pounds or just over 40 million pounds a year contribution by 2025.
0: Do you have a favourite site at all? Have you been to most of them?
1: Oh, I have to say um, I'm torn between a couple of the key sites that I get to sort of work with a lot because of my role. Um, but I would say that, you know, Kenwood House in North West London, mm-hmm. and I'm sure somebody will find uh, potentially a different podcast where I might have said something different, but right at this <laughs> moment in time.
0: Well, you Ken, can change Ken, your mind. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so at the moment, um, yeah, Kenwood House in North West London, um, who we work very closely with um, and are working closely with on a really exciting project that launches in uh, 16 days or just under just under two years. Mm-hmm.
0: So given this extraordinarily, you know, wide and broad role that you have, what's what's do you consider to be the best aspect of what you do?
1: I think I am really lucky and privileged in that I get to bridge the gap between um, this great portfolio of sites and Mm -hmm. external partners and sort of the weird and wonderful ideas. And somebody once said, you know, you're you're the head of the glass being half full. Um, And I guess, you know, to some extent I am and um, often find myself pitching concepts or ideas or, you know, running through event management plans and looking at looking at what we're about to deliver at a site, thinking this is really, really cool and not everybody necessarily gets, you know, this opportunity. So, um, yeah, I'd say that's probably the best aspect of my current role is that sort of that interesting bridge between other people's ideas, and then bringing that to life at our historic properties. Yeah, fantastic. I
0: I understand that, because I sometimes think when I'm in various, you know, member venues, you have to pinch yourself sometimes and think, blimey, today I was in Buckingham Palace. Not in the palace itself, of course, but part of it. It is just a remarkable luxury that we have, I think, in this sector. What have you been most proud of?
1: in terms of my career I think I'm you know most proud of you know the vision that we set out to to date to 2025 you know and the, the journey that we're on I mean I know that sounds a bit odd to say you're proud of a journey we're only just beginning but mm-hmm. you know it's it's um it's been sort of Almost 18 months in the making sort of from me joining right to sort of really bringing this to life um, with the right people in the right place now and all of the teams sort of settling into the the next four or five years and actually most proud that that's come out of the back of a global pandemic and you know we've still we've still got this this vision And this opportunity that we've identified, and I think, you know, hopefully I'll be able to look back in five years and say, look at all the amazing things we did, but they started with sort of 18 months of, um, you know, daily Zoom calls and planning sessions and team working. Um, but prior to that, I'm also very proud that I graduated. You know. Um, yes, yes. So that was uh, that was a bit be. of a novelty, given how much I worked <laughs> while I was at uni. So I think that's uh, that was that's that's up there on the list of achievements.
0: For sure. So you were a committed student. I think we can say. Then.
1: Yes, a very entrepreneurial student.
0: <laughs> yes, I can well imagine that you didn't fit the uh, the mould. I should I should say, but I'll be very careful what I'm saying because we may have lawyers listening to this. So. <laughs> In fact, we will indeed have lawyers listening to this. <laughs> And in the course of your career then, again, not necessarily within the sector, but anywhere that that, that you've been, has there been any particular piece of advice anyone's given you that you've found inspirational?
1: The one that sticks with me the most is probably, you know, you've 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 gotta you've gotta you've gotta keep going. Um, you've got yeah. to persevere, you've got to sort of be unrelenting in your drive to succeed. And I think I've seen that embodied in lots of different managers that I've worked for and lots of leaders that I look up to and I think there's always a difference between the two but both Mm -hmm. tend to share that same characteristic of sort of perseverance and determination and I think as a nation we've all sort of felt that more and as a sector we've felt that more now than ever having um, sort of come through the the COVID pandemic Um, so hopefully more people will relate to you know what it means to really roll up the sleeves and really get stuck in and sort of you know it can be a challenge but um it's worth it in the end.
0: Do you think perhaps with perseverance and determination comes ruthlessness or is that not necessarily always so?
1: I think there has to be an element of focus um which can sometimes come across as ruthlessness mm-hmm. um for sure and I think you, you know you have to be able to make uh the right decisions at the right time Um, you know and and put good thought into those and not only into their outputs or or the outcomes of those decisions but also good thought into the impact of those decisions and the people that will be impacted by those decisions but I do think that yes you need to have an element of that sort of sharp decision making to to keep going um, and see the wood through the trees as it were.
0: And what would you pass on to people coming up through the the ranks as it were up through the sector
1: I should say? Aside from my usual sort of uh, wax lyricalness about sort of, you know, the structure of approaching a problem with with no do and review, which I always get into everything I can when I'm <laughs> talking about the sector. Um, I think ultimately, you know, my advice to anybody joining the sector would be to embrace its nuances. Um, yeah. And, you know, like any workplace, um, you know, you re- and it sounds like I'm plugging no do review again, but you really do have to take the time to get to know the sector, and yeah, um, yeah. get to know the way that it works. Um, it isn't ruthlessly commercial. It isn't. Um, it isn't the the sort of potentially stale sector it can be sometimes perceived for being. It's got this mm-hmm. this interesting swing in the middle where actually it's it's being sort of pulled forward. Um, through sort of the need to survive but it's actually being pushed forward by lots of great advocates in various different institutions that want to see the sector evolve so um, and that's an interesting place to be in sort of you know innovation and survival all sort of blending together and I think anyone joining the sector should take the time to get to know that and know what's important to people within the sector.
0: Take us through a typical day in the life of Kingston Miles when he's at work.
1: Aside from something that I'm sure most people will relate to, which is sort of countless emails um, and now lots and lots of video calls with (laughs) colleagues. I think uh, a typical day um, really starts with um, the people, you know, in, in my various teams and seeing sort of what they're up to and what their requests are and, you know, what do they need from me? Mm-hmm. I tend to sort my inbox in different ways to see sort of what, what do my team need? What does my, my uh, line manager want from me? Um, so it's a little bit of that. It's, it's, you know, and at that point, that's a lot of problem solving, it tends to be a lot of problem solving, things that have been escalated. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it can be, you know, anything from reviewing a concept to use our intellectual property on a new product to preparing Well, today was preparing for a trade show uh, next week, to um, sort of generally just being involved in discussions, a lot of discussions around sort of innovation and growth and the future and, you know, how we can do that sustain, you know, sustainably in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, continue yeah. to grow over a period of time, but also in terms of, you know, the environment.
0: So out of all the breadth of, of areas that you have uh, under your remit, which one, can you tell us which one is the most um, profitable?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, at the moment, um, you know we we, we see you know, in those business areas and commercial development we're seeing really good returns in our portfolio of holiday cottages um, mm-hmm. bolstered yeah. by the sort of demand for UK staycation and then second to that you know our venue hire business which has again been bolstered predominantly by the requests uh, to use our sites for a variety of things from sort of some of the large-scale events we hosted at the end of the summer right through to using them as location hires um, with a variety of different sort of production companies but what the you know the common trend between those is, is that driver to need to or, or have had to stay in the UK um, mm-hmm. that's meant that you know those clients and customers have turned to UK based solutions um, to meet their needs so both those businesses um, under my remit are sort of of all of the businesses currently sort of benefiting the most and the most profitable but that's not to say that sort of intellectual property and licensing um isn't profitable you know we've got a really exciting program that's you know only just started to take shape over the past 12 months and with the appointment of our um first licensing agent um you know we'll hopefully see that start to sort of um, break into uh, licensing and especially as a sort of one of the bigger heritage brands we're hoping that we'll be able to sort of be up there with the likes of our competitors that have got quite established programs
0: Would that be more brand licensing, is is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I understand. Yes, that sounds very exciting if that's not been um, explored up till now. Absolutely. You mentioned sustainability um, just earlier on there. Are you able to talk to us about crisps?
1: Yes. (laughs) Please do. (laughs) Yeah, so you'd have seen my, I I posted recently on LinkedIn to say, you'll never believe how many times I've used the phrase, can you imagine? (laughs) <laughs> stories a packet of crisps can tell you but um, it links back to a product that's now sort of in the public domain as being launched so as uh, part of our brand licensing program I've been working really closely with a great company called Made for Drink um, and their MD and founder Dan and we've been working with them over the past year to create a range of crisps that sort of embody all of our licensing values from sort of Authenticity to you know imagination, inspiration, and fun, and really nicely being able to work with made for drink also around sustainability. So we've uh, created four flavors of crisps that are uh, launching um, imminently at a number of uh, retailers and available online. Well, I can't disclose the retailers just yet. I'll save mm. that for the press release. Um, okay. But the great thing about these crisps is not only are they sort of, you know, Yorkshire um, grown and cooked potatoes, mm-hmm. it's the, the flavours and the stories behind those flavours. So we have um, English truffle, which is hunted by a truffle jo- a dog called Jack. We've got <laughs> Dorset Sea Salt. And uh, that's the story of the Dorset Sea Salt Company is incredible. Mm. Um, it was... Um, the, the, the salt uh, is from a salt farm in Dorset, on the mm-hmm. Jurassic coast, um, mm-hmm. harvested by hand uh, by Jethro and his family, um, <laughs> cool, who was awarded a grant by the Prince's Trust to rekindle this mm-hmm. tradition on the Dorset coast. Excellent. Um, so, and as I said, you know, we've got Jack the Truffle Dog um, with his owner James, um, and those yes. are sort of picked um, throughout, the, throughout the country. Um, and and again, um, that you know, the English Truffle Company's got a great story. You know, he took his dog on a truffle hunting course, and here we are. Oh, um, you know, now able to create these great truffles. But on top of all these sorts of stories connecting, um, you know, these these English um, food manufacturers, yeah. is this this carbon neutral journey. So so these um, these crisps themselves, um, and through our partner, made for drink are delivered 100% carbon neutral, and they offset uh, with the Exmoor Carbon project, which is a really great project and is a UNESCO biosphere business. And then um, within that, the actual crisp packets themselves that the end user consumes, uh, we're working towards those being um, 100% plastic free and home compostable. Um, And we should be 100% home compostable um, by April. Um, As with lots of things uh, currently, sort of supply chain issues and challenges um, are are with us. But um, ultimately, you know, that's a real goal and a key part of the ethos of working with Made for Drink is that we capture these great stories and we tell them in a really sustainable way.
0: Anecdotally, I've heard over the past month or so, I think, from various senior figures in the sector that they're looking towards the recovery, if you like to call it that, as taking anything from the next three to five years before things get. inverted commas again back to normal. How do you see the future of the sector over the next five years Kingston and what changes might be foreseeable?
1: The one key thing we'll see in the sector is this uh, drive to diversify income streams. I think traditionally uh, Mm. the sector has really heavily relied on its retail operation, its catering operations Mm. and very much its admissions income. So We've a number of institutions that have built a financial reliance in fact all the institutions in the sector have built a massive financial reliance on that on-site visitor Thank and you. that visitor engaging with their brand on site and i think we'll see we'll see a real boom in um diversification into to licensing um because yeah. that's probably still very untapped within within the cultural sector yeah. and i think we'll also see um sort of more Um, enterprising solutions working with partners to deliver events Um, you know we'll want to see organizations that will try to deliver more and will need to deliver more Mm -hmm. um, but potentially with less or well spending less um, and in more places so yeah I I definitely think if we look at um, the way that the sector's income uh, is, is split across various business types one would hope that when we look back in sort of five years time we'll see a shift away from you know predominantly on-site to you know to more opportunities to engage with generating income both off-site um, and away from the, the course or sort of retail and catering businesses
0: and very prudent too actually as I think a lot of us including very much smaller organizations than English heritage scrambling to get online during the the pandemic was um, was certainly the right way to go, but but if, if driven somewhat by panic, you know, um, but I absolutely agree with that. Do you think there might be a change in the visitor, for instance?
1: What I am seeing um, just over the past 18 months is a shift in, you know, the guests that are staying um, in our portfolio of holiday cottages. Yes. In the clients that are looking to utilise our sites for um as as filming locations in particular and as venues um, for sort of large scale events. We are seeing, um, you know, there's a lot more domestic spend from clients and customers at the moment. And Mm -hmm. I think we would, you know, I think the whole sector would like to see the return of international um, tourism. And and especially for those sites, you know, that for which the international tourist is a a critical part of their, their visitor demographic but um, I think it will take time. And I think, you know, we're looking at all, there's lots of different uh, data being made available to the sector, which is wonderful. If not, sometimes a little confusing, you know, and especially for for institutions to digest, do I prepare for the return of the international visitor next year or the year after or 2025? So I do think there'll still be a little bit of um, a gray mist while we really understand the lasting impact of the pandemic.
0: Following on from, you know, the conversation we've just had about holiday cottages and how much of a part they play in the portfolio and how profitable they are. It seems to me anyway that when I look at them on site, they're really lovely and you seem to have thrown a lot of money at refurbishing them.
1: Yeah, we are um, embarking on a really ambitious plan to um, bring all of our holiday cottages up to a modern standard Mm. Um, and working with a number of suppliers. uh, We started that programme uh, last year. Um, Mm -hmm. And we were lucky enough to be able to work with quite a notable supplier um, in the John Lewis partnership Mm -hmm. um, and brought um, up to spec five of our sort of portfolio of holiday cottages. And, you know, we've a small portfolio compared to some of our competitors. But actually now we're looking at how we can integrate um, that sort of customer journey and that sort of enjoyment of exploring our brand further. And we've just finished recording um, and mapping some of those cottages with a 360 degree camera and users will be able to sort of browse that cottage as you you know you would online but you'll be able mm-hmm. to click on items that you think you might like and be able to go through to a link to buy those you know from the relevant supplier in your that's own fantastic.
0: Home. So that yeah. is so clever i've never seen that anywhere before to me that that's a real innovation What is your favourite work of art and why?
1: There's actually a really interesting story behind um, art (laughs) and my favourite work of art um, (laughs) that I can tell you. So um, Mm -hmm. I um, ashamedly worked at the Ashmolean for uh, just under two years, but never really got an opportunity to really take in the art as you you don't. You're sort of whizzing through the museum um, and... Um, sort of, you see it more as a place of work, if you like, than necessarily um, the necessarily the great gallery um, and collection that it that it houses for the University of Oxford. Um, but um, I was lucky enough um, in 2019 to take a trip to New York. Um, and stay with a friend and while I was there sort of took advantage of working for an International uh, Council of Museums member and took the ICOM card with me Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, that meant I was able to sort of explore um, all of the galleries that that New York uh, has to offer um, and fell in love with an exhibition that was on at the Guggenheim uh, which was called uh, Artistic License uh, Six Takes on the Guggenheim. And it was the first ever artist curated exhibition um, that was sort of mounted right around the internal spiral of the the Guggenheim, sort of celebrating its own collection of like modern and contemporary art. Um, And I fell in love with Jackson Pollock uh, there. Um, so, um, and ironically just this morning, although I wish I could say, you know, it's a, an official Pollock, it's not, it's unfortunately, it's a it's a canvas reprint, uh, but I did unpack uh, uh, Jackson Pollock uh, for my own, uh, my, my, to put above my dining room table so that I could oh, sort of have goodness. my little bit of the Guggenheim here with me.
0: <laughs> How fabulous, and all, are all Jackson Pollocks like we imagine Jackson Pollocks to be, or did he do another style at, at all?
1: Well, I'm hoping they are all as we imagine them to be, right. sort of okay. these crazy, missed, you know, abstract, uh, expressionist yes. sort of yes. drip techniques. Yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, lo and behold, now I'm sure somebody will ping me a link on LinkedIn to say, surprise, here's a pollock that <laughs> didn't um, And it will completely sort of ruin the blur of the fact that, you know, really, what is a pollock other than just sort of yes. canvas?
0: And following on from that, tell us your happiest place.
1: Well, those that know me well will chuckle if I say anything other than the gym. Uh, So um, that's that's probably very much uh, my happy place, sort of, you know, quietly nestled away. I say quietly nestled away, sort of headphones in, distraction free, you know, and a a good place to think and reflect um, and sort of burn through some energy.
0: Wow. I am just, you know, in awe, actually, of anybody who finds the gym their happy place, but it's all sorts (laughs) to make the world. Thank you Kingston thanks ever so much for this all too brief chat it's been uh, a real pleasure to get to know you better uh, over this last half hour and I hope our uh, listeners thought so too so thank you once again.
1: No thank you (laughs) thanks for having me.
0: It's been a pleasure.